You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, out of the 12, he was always the one who seemed to go first. He was the first to drop his nets in the wet Galilean sand. He was the first guy out of the boat to feel the waves around his nervous ankles. He's always the first to open up his mouth, always the first to give his opinion. On that good Friday, he was the first to feel the heat of the questions, the first to feel guilt by association, the first to feel the wordless ache in the echo of a distant rooster's crow. Why was he always getting himself into these situations anyway? Did you ever ask that question? Was he trying to prove himself? Was he trying to prove something to the others? Maybe that he was more spiritual than the rest? No, I don't think so. I think his outward passion was really connected to an inward desperation. I think his loud mouth was connected to a very deep heart. See, I think that like you and like me, Peter, the disciple who always had to go first, saw something desperately wrong with his world and he wanted to fix it. Anybody see anything wrong with our world today? Anybody eager to fix it? And Peter just charges in with whatever seems right to him at the time. Wouldn't you love to know how Peter would have handled a 2021 world? I would. Seriously, think about it. Would he pick up the sword? He'd done that before. Would he bury his head in the sand or run away in fear? He's done that before, too. Maybe he would just open his mouth and start talking. Guilty. (laughs) How would Peter handle what's wrong with our world today? See, I think Jesus wanted to teach Peter something. It just took him a long time to learn it. (laughs) I think Peter spent his life asking a question that Maybe some of you are asking today, how will the wrong in our world be made right? Just to push this to the front of your mind, I believe that how you answer that question determines the course of your life more than anything else. How will the wrong of the world be made right? So the good news is that God's word addresses that question head on. And on Easter morning, it's absolutely unavoidable what the answer is. And so this morning, as we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, I want to spend our time really in just three places in God's word. First, I want to drop us into that very first Easter morning right alongside Peter. I think you'll find yourself there. Also then, I want to fast forward 30 years because Peter writes a letter to a church It feels very much like many of us do today, maybe. And then lastly, I want to ask you what you're counting on to fix what's wrong with your world. Where are you looking to for rescue? It's a question that we need to ask. So 
Here's the first scene. It's 33 AD, Passover in Jerusalem. Passover in Jerusalem was like New Year's in Times Square. Right? You can't find a hotel anywhere. Every nook and cranny of the city is packed. Dinners went late. Parties were had. Celebration and conversations were lively. Well, what are they celebrating? Celebrating Passover. It's this deeply formative, defining moment in the history of God's people. Maybe you know the story, but hundreds of years earlier, God's people were slaves in Egypt. Once upon a time, God had promised them land, a future, a bright hope, but now they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. They needed help. They needed hope. They needed a rescue. So God's word describes the situation hundreds of years ago like this. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Don't you love those four words? <laughs> if ever wondered if God hears you, if God's forgotten about you, if God doesn't see you and God doesn't know you, you are in good company. You're not alone. Hang on to that feeling for just a few moments. So out of love for his people, God makes the first move those many, many years ago. He calls a leader named Moses and his brother Aaron to lead his people out of slavery. Some of you are picturing this Charlton Heston film from so long ago. But God gives him some really strange instructions, doesn't he? Here's what he says. Take a look. It says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for their household. Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, hence the name Passover. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. And you shall keep it as a feast. So here's the deal. Because they had oppressed God's people, God was going to send a, pl a plague through the land of Egypt. But because he loves them and wants to rescue them and deliver them and pull them out of it, he says, I'm going to pass over you. And he asked them to take this spotless lamb. It's a very weird thing. He says, prepare it for a feast and then take some of the blood and wipe it on the doorposts of your houses. That'd be like wiping it on our mailbox. That is the weirdest, strangest sounding thing to our modern ears. But it's what God commanded, so it's what God's people did. So how did it turn out? Many of you know the story. After 450 years of living under the boot of Egypt's oppression, God's people woke up the next morning and they are finally free. Cool story. A God who loves broken, helpless people wants to liberate them from something they can't get out of on their own. And I hope you caught this at the center of it all, the blood of a spotless lamb. That's Passover. That's what God's people are celebrating that first Easter weekend as they had for hundreds and hundreds of years. All of that is hanging in the air. The idea of a spotless lamb whose blood says, 
rescue. And so on that good Friday and the Thursday and the week that preceded, Passover is fresh on people's minds. Thursday evening, the sun sets. Homes are lit by candlelight as families gather around the table as they had for centuries. Tables are spread. Wine is poured. Families remember and celebrate. And then in a rented room in an obscure corner of the city, this upstart Jewish carpenter's son turned rabbi named Jesus gathers with his 12 closest friends. He's serving them Passover. And the familiar elements of the bread and the wine make their rounds in the table. This carpenter's son says some very strange things. He says, in a little while, you won't see me anymore, but then you'll see me again. That's odd. He says, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices, but then your sorrow will turn to joy. What's he mean by that? In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Their word, his words must have landed so strangely on their ears. What is he talking about? Trouble? Why? You're leaving? Where are you going? What do you mean we're going to weep and mourn, Jesus? But he doesn't answer their questions. Instead, after dinner, this Jesus takes his friends to a garden, a place where they had been before, and he just asks them to pray. And they sit in the quiet. And then before long, the shadowy places of a garden are interrupted by flickering torches and rattling chains. And this Jesus is clapped in irons and led away. Twelve hours later, he's dead and buried. So much for celebrating God's rescue. But many of you know that Good Friday is not the end. Saturday is this great quiet in the midst of a horrifying week. The story picks up on Sunday morning. Friday had to hit Peter really hard. His mind is in a fog of denial and running away and flight and cowardice. And what is this God? Does he even remember me? Does he see me? Does he know me? Has he completely forgotten about the pain of this world? Where did you go, Jesus? John tells the story like this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to who? Peter. <laughs> and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, for those of you who don't know, whenever John refers to himself in his gospel, he uses that subtitle, which is sort of like a weirdly modest way. Like, well, I'm the one who Jesus loved. Don't forget that, Peter. Kind of his way of sliding that in there. So Peter and John, and she says to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. Do you hear the desperation in her voice? So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Thank you, John, for your wonderful little subtlety, and reached the tomb first. First time Peter had been second place in his whole life, probably. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, we got it, John, and went into the tomb. When he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, 
not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, and the disciples went back to their homes. Now, that to me is a very interesting picture. You've got John, who's like the little brother of all the disciples. He's probably the youngest. Sees and believes. Peter, probably the oldest, sees and leaves. He's still confused. Isn't it interesting? You can have complete evidence for what Jesus has done and you still feel lost in your heart. I think it's very, very important to understand where Peter is in this whole scenario. He needs help. He needs hope. He needs a rescue. You ever been there? I have. Fighting for belief, wrestling with doubt, wondering when, if God's rescue is actually going to show up and change things. Here's why this is so important for us to think about on this Easter morning. Because the last 12 months or so have trotted out a million and one potential rescuers. And maybe the reason after 12 months why all of us are so tired is because every one of them has fallen flat. Not one potential rescuer that our world has given us in the last 12 months or so has panned out. There's only one that makes a difference. And we need to return our thoughts to this. The idea that our world is in need of rescue is not that strange. And this doesn't take a theology degree or you don't have to be a philosopher to look around and understand that our world is a beautiful but fragmented, dissonant mess. The idea that we need rescue should not be so strange. But the moment that you suggest a rescuer, you're making a much stronger statement. Because then that inward groaning in your heart has an answer. If someone's going to fix the brokenness, someone's got to be the one to do it. It doesn't get fixed on its own. Something outside of our world must fix our world. It won't fix itself. And the very next thing that comes out of your mouth reveals your hope. What are you counting on to fix the wrong in the world? How will the wrong in the world be made right? If the hopeless can be renamed hopeful, there must be a hope bringer. If the darkness can be replaced with light, there must be a light giver. If rescue is possible, there must be a rescuer. The only question is, who? In the days that followed, the light finally clicked on for Peter. He's a little slower than maybe he'd like to admit. God uses him in phenomenal ways in the early church. Jesus has this restorative conversation with them. You can read about it in the latter chapters of John where they actually sit down and, interestingly enough, have another meal together. And then 30 years go by as Peter walks with Jesus, follows him in obedience. And then God uses Peter to write a letter to a group of Christians who are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They need help, they need hope, and they need a rescue. And so now Peter, 30 years of wisdom behind him, looks in the rearview mirror of his own life and writes this. He says, you, talking to Christians, he says, you were ransomed, you were rescued. How? 
from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a what? Lamb. Without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or shown in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who did what? Raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. What's he saying? He's saying you were ransomed, you were rescued. Sounds great, Peter. I'd love to have the brokenness of the world fixed. How? By the blood of Christ. Well, how do I know that that's enough, Peter? Surely I have to contribute. Surely I have to be good. No, 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 no. You know it's enough because God raised him from the dead. A theology of resurrection is so crucial to hope. Peter reaches all the way back to the first pages of their story and says, just like then, God hears you, God remembers you, God sees you, and God knows you. The resurrection isn't about magic. It's about authority. That Jesus is king and death does not reign. The cross is the payment. The tomb is the proof. The cross is the sacrifice. The tomb is the celebration. The cross is the rescue and the tomb starts the restoration. This Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter's son, first century Jewish rabbi who lived a sinless life, fulfilled the law of God, dies a sacrificial death and rises in victory on Easter morning, is the only ever all-sufficient rescuer for lost and broken humanity like me. It's all on him. And if your picture of rescue starts with anyone other than Jesus, involves anyone other than Jesus, includes anyone other than Jesus, or rests on anyone other than Jesus, then you've missed the point of Easter entirely. All of my sin on his back Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. My sin left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. My efforts don't contribute. My behavior doesn't count and my intentions don't matter because God is deeper than my sin. And guys, that is really good news. It's really good news because if this last year has taught me anything, it's the limit of my own strength Anybody else felt that this year? How weak we actually are. How feeble we actually are. And here's the good news of the gospel, that there is a God who loves you, who sent his son to die for you and rose in victory over the sin that I don't even acknowledge. And all of that is true whether or not you believe it. And so the only one who loses in your unbelief is you. And God loves you enough to do that. How marvelous and how wonderful. Christ is strong, not me. Christ is able, not me. Christ is victorious, not me. Praise God. So the question that we've got to ask this morning isn't, do you need rescue? Of course you need rescue. That should be obvious. You feel it in your heart. You look around our world and you see everything imploding. You feel hopelessness in your heart like vapor trails from something that used to be there before. Of course you know you need rescued. The question is not that. The question is, do you know the rescuer? Not, can you recognize him or do you know about him? Not, are you coming to church? Not, are you a good person? Have you somehow, you know, cleaned up your life in such a way where God is more pleased with you? That's not what I'm talking about. Because that question is still nagging. How will the wrong of the world be made right and if your answer is anything other than Jesus, let me gently break your heart. 
it won't satisfy you. See, I think sometimes we get it backwards. I think sometimes we think that the only people who can come to Jesus are the spiritual ones, the good ones, right? The ones who have their life all cleaned up and everything all put together, they have all the answers. That's backwards and upside down. The only people who can come to Jesus are the ones who are desperate enough to be rescued by him. Tired people, broken people, people who are frustrated with looking at all the empty things. Sometimes until I experience the brokenness and the emptiness of everything else, then I can know the fullness of Christ. Your sin is not deeper than God's mercy. Your sin is not deeper than his love for you. However deep you go, he is deeper still. So I want to land where we started this morning. I want to end with a question. How will the wrong of the world be made right? And an empty tomb on an Easter morning declares one thing. He and he alone is able. Jesus alone is able. Now I look out this morning and I know, I know a lot of you because, you know, this is your church home. Maybe you come to church, maybe you haven't. Maybe this is your first time in church, I don't know. There is no more important decision that you could make this morning. No more important question you could ask than where do I stand with Jesus? Not do I know about him, do you know him? Is he yours? I know he's my rescuer, is he yours? Don't leave this morning without that. So here at the North Canton Chapel, you heard Pastor Dave say it a little while ago, we exist to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone. And then on Easter morning, it's so obvious to see why. <laughs> see, we believe, though, something else. Not just are we supposed to take that truth and hoard it for ourselves. We're meant to give it away. We're meant to share that to people who don't know him yet. And maybe that includes you this morning. So this morning, we actually have a really neat opportunity I want you to ask that question for yourself. But beyond that, we have an opportunity to partner with one of our ministry partners called Citizens Akron. This church just up the road is led by Pastor James Talbert, who shares such a clear connection to the gospel that we do. It's this gospel-driving heart. This is Jesus is the hope of a lost and dying world. So we have an opportunity to be generous with our faith. So I'm going to let you know where we're going this morning. 50% of all tithes and offerings that are given today are going to be given to a project for Citizens Akron. We've got this great opportunity to bless a neighborhood through the good news of the gospel. Because we believe that everybody deserves the opportunity to experience the love of God in a community of committed Christ followers. That's what we're committed to be for North Canton, and I know that that's his heart for Akron. And so for a little bit more, to get a sense of what is going on, turn your attention to the screens. My name is James Talbert, and I am one of the pastors at Citizens Akron Church in the Middlebury neighborhood in Akron, Ohio. So what we're trying to do is what Jesus calls us to do. We're trying to love our neighbor as ourselves, 
And as we look out at our neighborhood and we see what's going on, one of the best ways for us to be good news to our neighborhood is to not only help people spiritually transition from hell to heaven, but it's to help people not live in hell. And one of the biggest ways we can help people not live in hell in our neighborhood is to invest into the education of our neighbors. At Mason Elementary School, the only school in our neighborhood, there's a 61% mobility rate. And what that means is 61% of the kids who enter Mason at the beginning of the year will not end there. So that leaves a lot of educational gaps for the school. So what we want to do is we want to purchase a building that is right in walking distance to the school so that we can start an after-school program to be good news for the neighborhood. There we'll be able to do educational after-school programming and enrichment that will include Bible study classes so that we can help people not live in hell but also show students and prayerfully families what it means to follow Jesus all at the same time. So the support that you would give towards the Vincent House would be for the purchase and rehabilitation of the building, but it would also go into the first year of programming where we hope to do after school stuff, where we partner with the school to see what would be most helpful in their pursuit to further educate students. We're gonna do enrichment stuff. We're gonna work with the local YMCA to get kids uh, into swim classes, which I'm super excited about, their partners. So I hope they're not like me, I can't swim. So I hope they can learn how to swim. But we're gonna do all types of different enrichment style things. But the after school program is only for three hours a day. So this summer, we're launching a community listening initiative so that we can listen to the neighborhood, see what needs that they have, and fill the rest of the day with programming that'll be beneficial to the neighborhood. We believe that the best way to love our neighborhood is to love families holistically. And at this point, we've done a lot of ad hoc things and we've done a lot of organic programming, but this will be a very stable, forward-facing way for us to create long-lasting relationships with families where we're gonna be hanging out with their kids, where we're gonna be inviting parents to different programming that happens with the well and that's happening in the neighborhood with the hopes of seeing families both spiritually and socially restored by the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I know you heard that. There's that common thread. And the way that Pastor James talks and the way we talk around here, that Jesus Christ is the hope of a lost and dying world. And I happen to know that they've already received a lot of donations for this project. There's a lot of people who believe in what they're doing. And so we want to help them carry it across the finish line. And so here's what I want to invite you to do. Two things that I just want to ask you. I'm going to sing a song in a minute, but I want you just to sit, just to reflect. First question that I want to ask you is, where do you stand with Jesus? Is he yours? You need to answer that question. Don't leave here today without. Second thing is, how would you respond to that? The invitation to not just believe the gospel, but to take the gospel. It may mean giving generously. It may mean praying, focused. It may mean sending an encouraging text to somebody who just needs to know the hope of Jesus. So I want to invite you just for a few moments to sit, just to reflect and ask God how you might be led to respond. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, 
please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.